Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to Truth Quest Podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. I have one announcement before we take our first question, and that is that next Wednesday and this coming up Saturday, which is Christmas Eve, we are not going to have a Q&A. All right? So um, just so you know that. So for the next week, we're not going to have them. We'll resume them <clears throat> every Wednesday and every Saturday, or at least most of them uh, after that. So our first question I got at the end of a study a while back where someone asked me if God ever changed his mind. They had been talking to an atheist and the atheist was showing them passages where it says that God doesn't repent. He's not a man. He doesn't repent. And then showing passages where it says that God changed his mind. And she was wondering what was going on. Did God change his mind? And um, so we want to take a look at that and consider that today. The answer is, yes, God does change his mind, but God is all-knowing, so he knows everything. So it's really hard for us to understand when God would say, I regret that I've made mankind, or I regret that I've made Saul king, or I've changed my mind and I'm not going to destroy Jerusalem now, which is one of the instances uh, that it takes place. Let me show you, first of all, how God can change his mind and not be a contradiction, which again, a lot of atheists want to make it a contradiction. Let me go ahead and pull up a scripture for you here. Uh, so this is Jeremiah 26, 13. It says, now therefore, or, uh, now therefore amend your ways and your doings and obey the voice of the Lord your God. Then the Lord will relent concerning the doom that he has pronounced against you. So God had pronounced doom against them, but because, but if they would amend their ways and repent, then God would relent. So when the Bible says God relented, it's because man's heart had changed. God has, God is gracious. God is kind. And when God says Nineveh is another, another thing, go to Nineveh, tell them that I am going to destroy them. Jonah shows up uh, 40 days and God's going to destroy you. They repent and God doesn't destroy them. So when the Bible says that God relents or God changes his mind, it's in connection to man repenting. And you might say, well, God knows everything that man's going to do because God's omniscient. He knows it all. Yes, that's true. But God is also going through time with us and experiencing it with us. And he's God. You and I, sometimes we try to put God in our, in our minds like he's us. If we know everything that's going to happen in life, we would be bored to tears. <clears throat> and we would, because we already knew, we wouldn't have a fresh regret or grieving of something taking place. But God is not man, and God goes through things differently. And so when God made mankind and then later regretted it, he was in that moment of all the evil that he was seeing. And the word regret is also translated grief. So he had grief. Let me read this next one here. This is Genesis 6, 6. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. And he when was grieved in his heart. So that often in the King James, it's um, God, God, um, God was what well, I can't remember the exact word in the King James um, that God had um, regretted that he had created mankind. And so here it's in the New King James, it's used properly as grieved. 
So the idea that God regrets something, also in Samuel, God said that he regretted making Saul king. We get this here. I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments, and it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. So God said, I regret that I have made Saul king. God knew that Saul was going to do this when he called him, but Saul could have taken a different path. And as God is living it with Saul, and he sees Saul actually doing the things that he knew were going to happen, he, he regretted it. It was not the same as me regretting that I bought a dog. It's not, it's not the same. It's God going through it and regretting that this had happened and that he made Saul king. Look at one more here. This is Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Has he said, I will, and he will not do? Or has he spoke, and he will not make it good? So this is the verse that they use to attack Christians or the Bible in order to say God changed his mind. But God changes his mind upon the repentance of men. And I don't think that there is any kind of discrepancy with God changing his mind when mankind has, let me get my do not disturb on here. Seems like I always forget that. And then I start getting dings. I don't want those dings going on constantly. All right. Um, so uh, there, there is no contradiction in God saying, I will do this, and then God relenting from doing it when men repent. We understand that these things are just happening. All right. So thank you uh, very much for the person who asked me that question a few weeks ago. And um, we will go ahead and take your questions now. I, uh, good to see you guys. Good to have you here. Um, hope uh, that you're having a good pre-Christmas and that you have a good Christmas. Uh, we have our first question from Kara. Kara says, what is the definition of blasphemy, the Holy Spirit, or blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the unforgivable sin? Um, that he, um, God, the unforgivable sin, God said he would not forget. All right, Carla. Uh, our Cara, not Carla, sorry. Um, let's go ahead and consider, let's go ahead and consider that. So what kind of sin will God not, God not forgive? We know that the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders, all had a whole lot of things that were, they had a whole lot of knowledge. They knew a lot about God, but they rejected and they rejected and they rejected. If anybody should have seen the signs and known the signs of their times, and Jesus even told them, you're hypocrites, you can see the, you can tell the weather, but you can't tell the signs of your own times, they should have known. They had all of this knowledge and they refused and they would not receive him as Messiah, no matter how many signs they, there were. And the Holy Spirit is the one who would be working in their hearts, drawing them to receive Jesus as the Messiah. So when they rejected calling the Holy Spirit, the um, Beelzebub, he doesn't cast out by the Spirit of God, but by Beelzebub, then Jesus was like, that's it. You guys have gone too far. They refused. And now he spoke in parables so they would hear and wouldn't believe. They had committed the unforgivable sin. We see it's the same in Hebrews chapter 6, where it says, it says, once you've tasted the heavenly gift and gives all of these things, and then you fall away, that it's impossible to renew you to repentance. 
So the person that's committed the unforgivable sin doesn't want to repent, like the scribes and Pharisees who didn't want to follow Jesus. It's not that you want to repent, but you can't. It's that you don't want to repent. And so if you want to come to Christ, you haven't committed the unforgivable sin. If you repent, you haven't committed the unforgivable sin. And someone says to me, but I think that I have. Well, then repent, but I don't want to repent. Well, then maybe you committed the unforgivable sin, but I don't want to commit the unforgivable sin, then repent. I don't want to repent, see? And so it kind of goes in a, in a giant circle. God can forgive anything. When we were talking about suicide the other day, someone asked um, whether God could forgive incest or murder if God could forgive suicide. Let's just go all the way to murder. The worst thing that you could do to someone to take their lives, taking someone whose life is in the image of God, but it's still not an unforgivable sin. If you repent, God will forgive you. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins. We think that there's something men can do that's so bad that it cannot be forgiven, but there's not. The only sin that can't be forgiven is the one that you won't confess and when you won't repent, when you won't go to God. So the unforgivable sin doesn't look like a person that's walked away from God, said some bad things about God, and now wants to come back, but now God won't receive them back. That's the enemy trying to get people, you know, minds on fire, throwing his, shooting his fiery darts in, trying to get your minds on fire so that you won't, con confidence, follow him, knowing who you are in Christ and what God has planned for you. But the unforgivable sin is the person who doesn't want to follow God. And you still don't know whether they, that person has committed the unforgivable sin until he actually dies in an unrepented state. Because there are people who don't want to repent, but then all of a sudden something happens. God does a work in their lives. God moves in such a way and they want to repent. So we don't know when someone crosses that line. We knew it with the scribes and Pharisees because Jesus told us. And if you're a person right watching this and you're like, I'm not going to follow God. I don't want to follow him. I want to do my own thing. You might even believe in him. You might have demonic faith. The demons believe, but they can't be saved. You may believe, but you're not saved. You don't want to follow him. You want to do your own thing. Well, how do you know that there's not a line you'll cross when God will say enough? You've got enough knowledge. You've got enough information. I think it's very rare. And I think you have to have a lot of information like those in Hebrews 4 or Hebrews 6 do and like the scribes and Pharisees that committed the unforgivable sin. So Jesus said, um, any word spoken against the son of man will be forgiven, but the blasphemy of the spirit shall not be forgiven. So it was not connected to uh, what the words of someone who said. This is important because this, the, the, the enemy will cause somebody to put a word in their mind against the Holy Spirit, and then they think, that's it, I've committed the unforgivable sin, but that's not what it said, and that's not what it is. All right, Kara, I hope that is helpful. Um, feel free to ask a follow-up on that if you didn't quite get it. Um, did Satan, did Satan through the snake talk to Adam or only to Eve? Uh, Genesis 3, 1. Um, yes, some interesting things here, Daniel, on um, Satan as the serpent. Uh, I'm doing some studying today <clears throat> on angels 
and I'm going to be talking about them tonight. Um, we're talking about angels in the book of Revelation, what they look like and what they do. And uh, well, the thumbnail will be the world of angels. And um, I'll tell you about the seraphim here in just a moment. Um, let's see. Well, I'm going to go to the New King James. All right, there we go. Genesis 3.1. All right. So it says here, I'm putting it up on the screen for you, uh, that now the serpent, which is the Hebrew word for Natash, the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, God has, in, God, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. So the text tells us that he's talking to Eve. And it seems like Adam is there or at least nearby where she can take the fruit, eat it and give it to her husband. But she begins to question whether or not it's really true that the things that God has said, because Satan brings it up. So first of all, Satan questions God's word. Then she changes God's word and then he denies God's word. And then she flat out rebels against God's word. And that's the initial sin of Adam and Eve that didn't have sin was the breaking of God's word. So Satan says, questions God's word. Um, has God said you can't eat of any of these trees in the field? When there's an accusation there or any in the garden, there's an accusation there. Um, God isn't good because he's not letting you eat from all the trees. She says, we can eat of every tree, but the tree in the midst of the garden, we can't touch or eat it. If you read what was said, it was said you can't eat it. Didn't say you couldn't touch it. So she made God's word more grievous or more severe. This is a danger we can all do that can lead us into sin, is to make God's word more severe. Telling people not to do things that aren't in the Bible is a problem. So then Satan says, you shall not die. This is the denial of the word of God. You surely shall not die. And, and she changed God's word by saying, and if we eat it, then God said we might die. And then Satan responds by denying God's word, which said you surely shall not die because God said, if you eat it, you will surely die. So you see how the whole word of God is just, we, we would say violence is done to the word of God by both the serpent and by Eve. And so she, she sees that it's good for food, um, desirable to make one wise. The serpent finally says, um, you can be like God, knowing good from evil, which is what Satan himself wanted, was to be like God, to put his throne up like God. And so she falls for it and she takes it. So it seems like Adam received the commands and then gave them to Eve, and Eve messed around with God's word and then rejected it. Jesus said, blessed are you if you keep my word, more blessed than Mary if you keep my word. That's why we want that priority of loving God, knowing him and keeping his word like the faithful church. They were commended because they kept his word. They were going to be kept from the time that's coming to test the whole earth because they had kept his word, it said. And so that's really important to us. Now, this serpent, oftentimes you hear people mock, what's a serpent doing in the garden? And we've got a talking serpent but we're told that the serpent is more cunning than anyone else. We also know that the serpent had legs at one time because onto its belly it would go. So it seems like this, this, this serpent who we know is Satan, is a serpent in the garden, that maybe he chose a serpent because there's a word for, there's a word in the Bible for a poisonous snake. 
called Seraph. And you may have heard it, it's called burning one. And that's because when you're bit by a poisonous snake, it burns. So they were, they were called seraph, poisonous snakes were. In fact, where the Bible says, Moses put up a snake out of bronze or brass in the wilderness for them to look at it. If anybody got bit by a poisonous snake, by a seraph, then they could look on the seraph that had been put on the pole. Well, part one of the angels, a group of angels are called seraphim, which in the Bible, is is a, a fiery snake and the fiery snake meaning not that it shoots fire but that it's poison is like fire and so you have a seraphim that's an angel and many see them as burning ones just meaning that they are bright but every time it's used it's used to speak of a serpent which could be that these angels were serpents and if if and we do know that lucifer was a cherub he was the anointed cherub that covers so he was a cherubim and he had this position that he covered, that's in Ezekiel 28. What if seraphim is a type of cherub and Lucifer literally had the appearance of a, of a fiery snake? There's even flying fiery snakes that we find in the Bible, a reference to fire, flying fiery um, seraph in the Bible. And could it be then that he either at this point possessed the serpent because it could talk or he himself was the serpent and because that and that god took poisonous serpents and put them onto their belly so th there, there's still some questions that are there but i find it very interesting um that seraph and seraphim is used to speak of a snake now natasha is the general word for snake but a poisonous snake is seraph and um some of the angels were seraphim they're the ones seen in revelation 4 which we're looking at tonight and the one seen in Isaiah chapter six, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and the seraphim flew around crying, holy, 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 Lord God almighty. <clears throat> I know you didn't ask for all that, Daniel, but you got it, I'm sorry, okay? Uh, it was on my mind. Um, yeah, so Rod's asking the question about Isaiah 19. I think you had, uh, had said last time that it's actually 25 and 26. And I, I looked it up and they are, it's this union between Assyria and Egypt and Israel. Um, and I want to look it up. I want to I, I want to look it up more. I just haven't done all the research that I want to do on it, Rod. I started it. Um, let me go there and I'll put it up and and we could take a look at it. Um, but I did spend some time in it. I just was too busy. I couldn't really dive in. It It is interesting and it does seem like it's still in the future to us. So I'm gonna to go, to, I think it's 24 and 25. So let me put it up on the screen here, see if this is the right one. 24 and 25, <clears throat> yeah. So in that day, Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria. Now, Egypt has a peace treaty with Israel. Assyria, I'm gonna, I don't think it can be equated to modern day Syria where there's a war raging, right? Remember Russia's got you know, troops in Syria. But I need to look at, just to take time to look up what Assyria is. And maybe you can do that work, Rod, to look up what Assyria is um, if I can't get to it. A blessing in the midst of the land whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hand, and Israel, my inheritance. So there is a way in which God's going to use Egypt, Assyria, and Israel together um, 
Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hand, and Israel, my inheritance. So they're still distinct, but there's a way in which they those three come together. And um, is this during the tribulation period? Uh, I, I'm, I'm not really sure, um, but I will take time to look into it more. But one of the questions that I've got here that I think could be the best, Rod, is who is Assyria? Well, who does Assyria represent? So looking at an old map, looking back in the days um, that Isaiah wrote this, who was Assyria? And was Assyria a part of Saudi Arabia that has a peace treaty with them as well? Or Jordan that has a peace treaty with them as well? Or is it Syria today, which has Damascus in it, which also has some things that are said in the book of Isaiah about it? All right. So thank you very much again, um, Rod. Could that be in the millennium? I, I say yes, could be. Um, I don't know that it is. I don't know that we get a time frame for when that happens, um, but we'll take a closer look at it. And thank you for, for clarifying that. I was able to go back. I, I get the log of all the chat, and I was able to go back and find where you had said it was 24 and 25, and then I was able to go and look. Much easier to read a couple verses rather than a really long verse when I, when I don't remember what the passage is about. All right. So thank you, Rod. I appreciate asking that question again. Uh, we have a question from Brendan. Brendan says, um, does 1 Timothy 2.5 indicate that Christ continues to be a man even after he was glorified? All right. Let's consider that. Let's go to 2 Timothy. Thank you for giving me the reference. I appreciate that. It's good to have the reference so we can look it up. Uh, sometimes we could just get clarification by looking at the actual text. So um, let's see. All right, Brendan, thank you. Uh, so here it says, let me put it on screen for you. So here it says, for there is one God and mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, to be testified in due time for which I was appointed a preacher of the apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and outline a teacher of the Gentiles in the faith and truth. So the question there would be um, that he's a mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. And you're asking whether or not he is a man who would be unglorified, right? Indicates that Christ continues to be a man even after he was glorified. Okay, yes. And I would agree I, I, I see your question, and uh, it makes and it makes sense. So Jesus is glorified now. He came up out of the grave. He was the first fruits of the resurrection, and he came out in his glorified body. He was able to go into a room where doors were shut and windows were locked and barred, and he appeared in the middle of them. He ate with them. Um, he let them touch him. He told Thomas, touch my hand, see the scars, put your hand here in my side, <clears throat> and you can see it. So yeah, Jesus was glorified but he's still a man. We, one day, the Bible say, says, we'll be like him. So we are going to have our glorified bodies for one day, this corruptible must put on incorruptible, this mortal must put on immortality, and we will have a body that is like Christ. And so we shall be like him. So yes, he's a man, but he's a man in his glorified body. And, and that's how he will go through eternity. Jesus came to rescue us, put aside whatever he was before, as far as being God, whatever form he took, and became a man. And now is a glorified man for the rest of eternity. 
And that speaks of this incredible sacrifice and gift uh, that was given as Jesus did that. All right. Thank you, um, Brendan. I appreciate that. Uh, we have a question from Jari. Uh, Jari says, uh, how did the Pharisees eventually react to the resurrection of Jesus? Did they come to believe that the disciples had stolen the body where they, that blind, that they didn't notice <clears throat> or didn't care. Um, yeah, so we're told, Jari, how they responded. Um, that's what the religious leaders did. They, they went to the guards, the Bible says, and made a deal with them that he would take care of them if they just said that the disciples came and stole the bodies. Well, when you think of it, this group of men that scattered was going to go and fight off the guards to be able to steal the body. And some say, well, there were no guards. That was just something that they said. So they just went and took the body out of the grave and then they buried it. Then they made a pact that they wouldn't break it. Then they went out and changed the world. The problem with that is, is that the majority of disciples were, were martyred. And in fact, John was boiled in oil, even though he didn't die a martyr's death as far as we know, but everyone else did. So if it was a lie, one of them would have broke. This is one of the reasons that, that almost all scholars will say that the tomb was empty. It's one of the, the five undeniable things or one of the undeniable things about the resurrection, that the tomb was empty because there were people there who knew. They knew where he was buried. They knew it was empty. And, and they could have easily quashed this, this um, new religion, Christianity, by producing a body, by finding someone who would say, no, the tomb was over there and not here, or no, I know that these guys stole the body. And these guys were tortured and died keeping the secret if it was a lie. And so people say to me, well, people die for a lie all the time. They believe something, they're, they're fanatical about it, and then they die. However, they are dying for a lie, but they think it's true. They're dying for what they think is the right way. So to them, they're a martyr for a cause. They don't know it's a lie. These men would die knowing there was a lie and deceiving everyone who became a Christian that Jesus had risen from the dead. And that's not the character of the disciples as they continue on. Nor do, do we think that, that the world would have changed as radically if these men made a pact with a lie and then even on the torture of death, uh, 11 of them <clears throat> did not, um, didn't break that, that pack. All right. So yeah, they did think they, they came together and made up the plan. They continued to reject Jesus and came together and made up the idea that this, the body was stolen by the disciples. And that still goes on today. The, the body, you know, that the people today will say that the body was stolen. So we have a question from Kimberly. Kimberly, good to see you. Kimberly says, Merry Christmas. A Merry Christmas to you too as well. How exactly do you lead someone in prayer to Jesus? What do you pray with them? And so I'm going to assume something here. I'm going to assume you're asking um, how you pray with someone when you're leading them to Christ. How do you lead someone in prayer to Jesus? Okay, so that's for salvation. What do you pray with them? All right, so let's just talk about this for a moment, Kimberly. Um, first of all, we know that we are 
to implore people that God's moving through us as ambassadors of Christ, imploring people to come to Christ. And we know that the gospel saves. And Paul says, I brought you the gospel, which you receive, which you stand in, by, and which by which you are saved, that Jesus died on the cross according to the scriptures and resurrected from the dead and was buried resurrected according to the scriptures. So that's the gospel. And if you believe it, receive it, and stand in it, you will be saved. So there is no magic prayer. Let's go to what I do every week at the end of almost every service. Rarely do I not do this. I'll say, keep your heads bowed, keep your eyes closed. And then I tell people, you can, you have the right to invite Christ in. John 1, 12 says, as many as receive him, he gives the right to become a child of God to those who believe in his name. And I give them the gospel. That is, Jesus died in your place. Your sins can be forgiven. He will transform you. <clears throat> God has a plan and a purpose for your life if you invite him in. Now, again, this is all very biblical because the Bible says that anyone can invite him in. We are his witnesses to go out in the world. The Bible says that we would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, some have a problem with giving people a chance to get saved. And I really like Ray Comfort. Ray Comfort is um, a Calvary pastor, Calvary Chapel pastor. I'm a Calvary Chapel pastor. I really like what he does, but he doesn't give people a chance to get saved. He doesn't tell them, do you want to give your life to Christ? And he tells the story of, of telling surfers, do you want to give your life to Christ? And a bunch of them did, but only about half of them followed or none of them followed. I don't know the whole story, but he made false disciples. So his warning is that every time I'm having people raise their hands and pray a prayer, that I'm making a false disciple, the possibility that I'm making a false disciple. And I won't deny that that possibility is there. But what we do say is you're going to be transformed. If there's no transformation, if you raise your hand and pray a prayer and you are not transformed, then it wasn't a saving prayer. The prayer itself doesn't mean anything. Raising your hand doesn't mean anything. It's the heart of a person that wants to receive them. So someone may raise their hand and pray the prayer because they like the sound of part of it, but they really are not giving their lives to Christ. They're really not receiving him. And so they're not transformed. And that becomes, that's, that's how you know whether or not you came to Christ. If your life isn't changed, if you became a Christian, but now you don't want to do what God wants you to do. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll do what I want you to do. Keep my commandments. And so if you say, well, I love Jesus and I'm a Christian, I just don't want to do what he wants me to do. Well, then I would question your salvation. I'm not judging you. I'm just saying you are transformed when you commit your life to Christ. So the thief on the cross, Kimberly said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The um, Philippian jailer said, what must I do to be saved? So then Obviously, he was told, you know, you believe in Christ and you will be saved and be baptized, you and your whole family. And the baptism came after the salvation. And <laughs> we could talk about that if we need to. Um, but um, the prayer could be any prayer. It could be any call out to God. It could be, God, I want to follow you now. Lord, I'm sorry. Forgive me. There's nothing. The Bible doesn't give us a sinner's prayer. So another thing, and a lot of Calvinists will do this they'll call the sinner's prayer unbiblical. And remember, they don't need a sinner's prayer because you are either chosen or you're not chosen. You are either rejected by God and can't be saved 
or you are irresistibly graced by God and you can't be lost. So they don't need a sinner's prayer. If I'm chosen sooner or later, I'm gonna find Christ. If I'm not, then I'm not going to. So they don't do altar calls. And then they don't like the fact that others do. And they will criticize an altar call, calling it unbiblical. Well, the sinner's prayer is not unbiblical. The thief on the cross pleaded, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's a sinner's prayer. It's not unbiblical. It's biblical. If you're going to implore people to come to Christ, Paul told the Athenians that Christ is not far from any of you. He was, he was, he was trying to get them to draw to Christ, and the Bible says some of them believed. Did he just stop and go, okay, God bless you guys, see you later. And then the Athenians were like, okay, I believe and I'm going to receive. Now I understand why a Calvinist would think that works because of what they believe about irresistible grace and limited atonement. However, for the rest of us, that's not unbiblical. They can say it is. They'll say to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior is unbiblical. Well, it's really not. You're becoming pen, uh, pedantic, which means super exact. You're pedantic with your wording. So the Bible never says, accept Christ and you will be saved. And so they call receiving Jesus as your savior unbiblical. But the Bible says as many as receive him, which another word for receive could be accept. So you get really pedantic about your words and make a statement like that. Then you get a lot of people who think it's wrong to pray with people to give their lives to Christ. So this is the prayer I use. And maybe you've heard it before, Kimberly. At the end of a service, when I have people raise their hands and they'll give their lives to Christ, I'll say, um, Heavenly Father, dear Heavenly Father, I confess that I've sinned. I know my sins have separated me from you, and I invite you into my life. That's John 1, 12. And I repent from my sin. And, and, and I give my life to you in the name of Jesus, amen. Sometimes I add in that I might live by the power of the resurrection to, to, talk, to kind of tie in that transformation aspect of it. Sometimes I'll tell them, listen, raising your hand doesn't save you. Praying a prayer doesn't save you. It's your heart really serving God. And then sometimes I'll say, and if you, you got it, you have to have a transformation. That's how you're going to know that you gave your life to Christ. If you raise your hand and you pray this prayer you, and, and you are not transformed, then you're not saved. The, the, the fruit will be the change in your life. This is what James said. James said, show me your your faith without works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. He wasn't saying that works and can save you. He's saying after you become a Christian, then you're doing the things that God wants you to do. We are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. However, the Bible says that God has created good works for me to walk in. I am God's workmanship created for the good works that God has for me to walk in. So I'm going to be transformed after I commit my life to Christ. And um, you want to make sure that that person has the transformation. It's not just like, you know, snapping a ticket. You, you're, you're validated now. You're going to make it into heaven. It's someone that really commits their lives to Christ and really is transformed and really is changed. And maybe the criticism for those like myself that give altar calls is that we have to make that last part clearer, that we have to let people know when they're giving their lives to the Lord, you are going to be transformed and God's got a plan for your life. Get the word of God, begin reading it. If you don't become a new person, then you haven't given your life to Christ. 
because if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, old things pass away and everything becomes new. So there is a danger, like Ray Comfort believes, that you could create false disciples. However, there's also a danger that someone could, could not give their lives to Christ when you were preaching to them. How are they going to believe unless there's a hearer? And so we preach Christ, believing that we are saving people, as James says, from the very pit of hell. And so we preach him. So the prayer is not all that important. Um, you can pray. Um, one of the reasons that I have people in the church repeat it with me is so that when they're leading with someone in a prayer uh, of salvation, they'll have something that they can pray, but it's not a magic prayer. And if it were biblical, let's just say that God gave us, when you lead someone to the Lord, say this, make sure it includes this. Then we would have a magic word, a magic phrase that we could use for people God did not give us a, a sinner's prayer because you can see the problem with it. It would become the means by which people would think they're saved when they're not, if they're saying the magic words that are there. We're never told to pray exactly in any way. Jesus said, when you pray, pray in this manner because he didn't want to give us that those exact words because we would think that they would be more powerful just because of those words. All right. Thank you, Kimberly. I appreciate that. And I appreciate the opportunity to be able to, hey, say to any of you guys who are out there who don't know Christ, that the Bible says that Jesus said, this is eternal life, that you know the one true God and the son whom he sent. That's the from Jesus. Eternal life is knowing God. And you can invite him in. You can receive him. As many as receive him, he gives the right to become a child of God. And this happens by the substitutionary death of Jesus on the cross, as was foretold in the Old Testament. It's, it said it would happen. And, and he can take your place. You have broken God's law and you have sin in your life. You've told lies. You've murdered in your heart. You've committed adultery in your heart. You've, you've um, stolen. All of these things are going to get you condemned. But Jesus took your place as an innocent man that you could be saved from hell and not be condemned. And if you receive him now, if you just even say, Lord, I want you in my life and you really mean it and you are transformed, then you have been saved. There's no magic word. There's no magic phrase. Um, give people an opportunity to get saved. That's what I say. However you do it, doesn't matter to me. Give people an opportunity to be saved. The Calvinist um, Charles Spurgeon met people. He gave people a chance to get saved. And he said, meet me at my office tomorrow morning, Monday morning and I'll meet you there and lead you to the Lord. So he gave them something to do so that they would come and receive the Lord. And I'm told that every Monday morning he had people at his door that he would take in, lead into uh, the family of God, have a little Bible study with them, talk to them about what they were gonna do. What a great way to have a follow-up to an altar call. Charles Spurgeon used to have a room, and I forget what he called it, but he had a room that was set aside. It's a weird name from the right 1800s. And he would say, meet me in that room. You want to give your life to Christ. And then he would go over to that room after the service and he would lead the people that were there into a relationship with God, talk to them a little bit more and, and make it a little bit more profound. I really like both of those ideas. And, um, I, uh, yeah, I really like both of those ideas. I, I, I like what they did. I think it's a little bit more personal and, um, I wish we could do it at our place. We have two campuses and I go back and forth. Um, it seems to me that we should be able to do something 
at certain times in giving altar calls and then going and leading them to the Lord. Uh, so, hey, there's a there's a, a non-Calvinist, D.L. Moody, and a Calvinist, Charles Spurgeon. Both of them gave altar calls. Both of them led people to Christ on a regular basis. So, so there's a couple of really good examples for you, and we can find it clearly in the Bible that we are ambassadors of Christ as if God is pleading with us to rec- be reconciled with God. The Bible says we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. How are you going to reconcile someone to God if you're like, oh, God loves you, God wants you, but then never asking them, would you like to give your life to Christ? The answer is going to be yes to a good number of people if they if they do it. And, and for a pastor of a smaller church who might be embarrassed when no one responds, I say, be faithful in giving the opportunity. And don't, it, it's not a indictment against you if no one responds. I have no problem if nobody raises their hand going, oh, okay, let's, um, let's pray. Or saying, if you're online, you know, I want to pray a prayer with you guys who are online because I don't know who may be listening to this. I don't have any problem when no one in the room responds or if one person responds. Uh, I'm faithfully throwing the net out there and seeing if there are people who would like to give their lives to Christ. And I think it's something um, that needs to be done. Um, and so um, I'm bringing a, a, mess, uh, a comment here from Keeping It Real. Good to see you Keeping It Real. The unforgivable sin is not repentance, um, ignoring. The Holy Spirit is more, you, you grieve the Holy Spirit, the less you hear him, and eventually you will never hear him. Um, all right, well, I understand what you're saying, that there's a process that takes place. Um, however, I'm going to go back to, um, I'm going to go back here. Let me just see if I can pull this up here. Hebrews 6. And I'm going to want to show you this, uh, this verse, if I can find it. Yeah, here it is. All right. So let me go ahead and bring this up on the screen for you. I'm talking about the unforgivable sin again. So this is verse 4 of Hebrews 6. For it's impossible for those who were once enlightened, have tasted of the heavenly gift, and become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted of the good word and the powers of the age to come. If they fall away, to renew them to repentance. That's it. whatever's happening to these people, saved or unsaved, let's leave that for another time. But if they fall away, to renew them to repent. It's impossible to renew them to repentance if they fall away, right? So it says, if they fall away to renew them to repentance, since they crucify again themselves the Son of God. So, you know, you come back to the very beginning here, for it is impossible, there's the first part of it, for those who are once enlightened to go through all the things if they fall away, the impo- it's impossible if they fall away to renew them to repentance. So that's the end of his thought. It's impossible to renew them to repentance. So whatever keeping it real, the process might be, it is someone not repenting. And if you, if you don't repent, you can't be saved. And if someone goes to the place where now they, they can't repent because they've committed the unforgivable sin, and that's a line that God would know, then that becomes a sign that, that, you, that you cannot repent. All right? So thank you very much. I appreciate that. Uh, let's see. Let me go here and here. There we go. All right. So um, I appreciate that. Uh, and we have a follow-up question from Jari on the Eve question, whether or not the serpent was talking to Adam and Eve. Um, why did Eve change God's word? Uh, touch it. 
was she still learning or was Adam supposed to teach her as a man of the house and he hadn't told her yet or something else? Yeah, I don't think that's um, anything that we can know. Uh, did, I, I would think that Adam would have been honest with her because he doesn't have a sin nature. Eve doesn't have a sin nature, but Eve does change the word of God and make it more severe. So we just don't know the process of where the breakdown was. God gave the, the promise and the command not to eat of any trees of the garden because if they eat it, they would die to Adam. We don't know whether God told Eve separately or Adam told Eve, we're just not told. And, and we assume Adam told Eve, but we're just not told. And I, I don't think that it ever says Adam told Eve. We don't know, maybe God told her. God would walk with them in the cool of the day. And so maybe God told her the same thing he told Adam. It doesn't say that he only told Adam it. So we make a lot of assumptions sometimes in scripture that can end up causing us problems. So we don't know where the breakdown was. What we do know is that she added or touch it, making God's word, making God's promise more severe or God's warning more severe. And I think people do that all of the time today. And what this does is it, it brings an accusation against God. I mean, God wouldn't even let you touch it. It makes God seem less gracious and more severe. And that's problematic. And I think that's a warning to all of us today. In fact, you can go to every way Satan attacked the word of God and Eve responded wrongly about the word of God. And we can learn things today about the way we handle the word of God, about properly handling the word of God. Maybe we'll actually go through it sometime and, uh, and, and look at exactly how it happens and how it applies today, how we mishandle the word of God when we make it less gracious. We mishandle God's word when we change it. And we can easily enter into sin or lead someone else into sin when we are doing these things. All right. So thank you for the follow-up question, Jari. I appreciate it. Um, we just, there are just some things we just do not know. Flying fiery snakes. Yeah. Daniel is like fi flying fiery snakes are bad. Um, snakes are bad, but flying fiery snakes are even worse. And um, again, if a seraphim was a fiery snake, it's just interesting. Um, I don't know that I, I haven't come to any conclusions. I just looked at it today, started to put that, that connection together and um, looked at a couple of things and saw that um, Tim Mackey from the Bible Project, which we don't agree with everything that Tim Mackey teaches. Um, there's barely anybody they agree with everything they teach, right? But he sees them as seraphim, that the seraphim were serpent-like. And um, that's interesting to me. So if you look up um, Bible Project seraphim, uh, then you see him going down that road as well. And, and me seeing the word seraph as, um, as a fiery serpent, talked of that word used as putting a snake up on the bronze, on the, on the brass pole, uh, what they could look at after they got bit by a fiery serpent, then um, that made me think. Because the word Natasha is used in that account as well, that they were bitten by Natash snakes, but then seraph is used as well, fiery snakes, which is interesting. It's just interesting. All right, so we have a question from JD. Uh, is this JD or is this another JD? There could be more than one JD. I know two JDs. Um, they're related. Uh, did the accused who fled to a city of refuge have to eventually face trial or could they remain there permanently? Um, no, JD, I think that it was only for them to be able to plead their case. And uh, if they were guilty, then they were handed over 
to the Avenger of Blood. Uh, and uh, I, I don't have any references for that, but uh, you would go back to the law. So you could do this pretty easily by by searching um, the Avenger of Blood, um, the sanctuary cities, and then starting to look through. Um, how, what I would probably do is I would, I would type in um, what the Bible says about the city of refuge. And then on open Bible, you're going to click on that. It's going to give you all the passages that have to do with the city of refuge. Now you're going to have to go through them, but start going through them. Look, especially in Exodus and in um, Deuteronomy, looking for talking about the city of refuge. And then you're going to see where, when they come and they grab a hold of it, there's a, well, there's a portion there that if they're guilty, and I don't remember the exact wording of it, but I do know that it's there. So, um, JD, if you look that up and you find it, let me know. All right. Uh, I appreciate your question. So we have a question from JDH. Is this another JD? JD um, hero? I don't know. Um, question. I heard Satan can still go to heaven to speak to the Lord. Example, in Job, when God spoke with him, uh, he was, and Satan said, go to and fro on the earth and up and down. Is this true? Yeah, I think it is true. And I'll tell you why, JDH. Uh, thank you for your question. Because in the book of Revelation, finally, there is a battle between Michael and his army. So here, Michael is seen as a warring angel, and he leads his army against the dragon and his forces. And there is no more room found them for them in heaven. Uh, the Bible also talks about Satan being the accuser of the brethren and Jesus ever living to make intercession. And so Satan accuses us in heaven like he accused Job. And we see his, accus his accusation there. Um, and Satan is called Satan there, and he's called an angel of the Lord there. Later on in the book of Job, it says all the, all the, he's called, they're called sons of God there. Sons of God and Satan. Um, that, that sons of God were numbered before, before God and Satan was among them. And then later on in the end of Job, God says, were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth and the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? So sons of God is a reference to angels and, and, and them shouting for joy. And um, so I got lost on where my question was. I got going down another, uh, another road. Um, so yes, he has access, but they will, that access will be taken from him. And the Bible says in the book of Revelation, uh, earth, woe to earth, <coughs> excuse me, woe to those who are on earth because the devil has come down knowing that his time is short and the, um, yeah, knowing that his time is short. So the day will come when he no longer has access up into heaven. But, and this is a weird foreign thought to us because the idea that these fallen angels still have access up into heaven, but they'll have it taken away from them. But it's a, it's a strange thought to us, but it's certainly one that is taught in scripture. Okay, thank you, JDH, for your question. I appreciate that. <clears throat> Um, let's see. I'm just reading a couple of the comments as I make my way through here. <clears throat> uh, 
All right, let me go on down and just see if I can get to our next question. <clears throat> we have a question from Stephen and Katie. Uh, good to see you guys. Uh, Stephen or Katie are both say, should we believe that everything in the Bible happened as written? Or as some suggest that some of it is just stories to help lead a good life, new to Christ and struggling with this? All right, Stephen, thank you very much uh, for your question. And I'm glad that you're struggling with it. And that sounds so weird. You're glad I'm struggling with this? Yeah, because these are the kind of things you need to get settled in your mind. These are the kind of things that will help you in the future not to have doubts. So um, we know that the accounts in the Bible happened in geographical places. They're not parables. They're not stories about someone like the man who went from, uh, from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves. That's a story. The, the story of Abraham has places and people in it. The story of Moses has places and people in it. The story of Joshua has places and people in it. And now we have a cursed stone from the time of Joshua. This was just discovered not long ago, a year or so ago. A cursed stone, it's an inch by an inch, and it has the name of Yahweh in it. It was found on Mount Gerizim, which is where Joshua led the children of Israel in, and they gave the blessings from Mount Gerizim and the curses from Mount Eber. I think that's the way you say it, close enough anyway. You know what I'm talking about. And, and on the cursed mountain, they found a cursed tablet that, that talked about these curses and had the name of Yahweh in it from the time of Joshua. We also know the other accounts of the Bible are true because we have a story of, of a battle with the Moabites in the Old Testament. And this is back in Kings, okay? Kings or Chronicles. So we're talking way back, all right? And this is during the time of the Kings. And this is supposed to be made up. This is what people say. These stories were made up to encourage people and strengthen them or to help them have a place to go in the land. But they found the Moabite stone, which was archaeologically found in the region of Moab that has the same account on it that's dated back to the time the Bible says these things happened. They also found the Sennacherib cylinders, which go back and talk about the time that the, the Ninevites battled against against Israel in Isaiah's day, Hezekiah and Sennacherib. And they tell the same story. Now there's differences, but it's coming from their point of view, but it's the same account. So these things tell us that these stories are real, that they really did happen. Now, are, is any part of the Bible a story that didn't happen? Uh, um, we were just talking about Tim Mackey a little while ago. So he's with the Bible Project. So Tim Mackey with the Bible Project looks at a lot of really good things, but he says that the book of Jonah is often used as a litmus test as to whether or not you're a real Christian. If you believe that Jonah really happened, then you're a genuine Christian. If you believe that it wasn't a real account, that God was using it to teach us something, then you're not a real Christian. He refuses that false dichotomy, and I think it is a false dichotomy, and he believes that the account of Jonah was an account that was used as a more of a, um, what would we call it, wisdom writing that didn't really happen. Now, I believe Tim Mackey saved. I don't think there's, that. if I would see him, I'd be excited to have him. I, I, I would be excited to have him at the church. 
I, I don't see things like this as being too far. I tend to believe that the book of Jonah really happened, that God really did that because it, it takes place in physical places. If someone goes, well, I don't really believe that that was physical, that doesn't mean the other stuff in the Bible that, that we know have archeological evidence for, which is strong archeological evidence didn't happen. We have independent sources to the Old Testament in the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found in 1948. So you have the Old Testament that came down to us through time. Then as if out of time, you found the Dead Sea Scrolls from 70 AD, some of them being dated to 100 years before that, maybe even longer. And now you have the full book of Isaiah that came from a whole new source. And way back and before Christ, they were the same source, but all that time passed. And when you look at the accounts of Isaiah and what he said happened, they're the same in both of these accounts, both of these lines. So there's so much evidence that the vast majority of the Bible is reality. The, the two that people question is Jonah and Job. Those are the two that people question out of the Old Testament, whether or not they're wisdom writings and they are stories that are told that are gonna help us and teach us lessons. I tend to believe that they're true and I have my reasons for that. But you can evaluate these things on your own, Stephen and Katie. And if, if the Bible's presenting them as true, then I see them as true. If, um, if they are wisdom writings, then they, they, could be, they could be something else. And this is why someone like Tim Mackey, Mackey who knows Hebrew, who, who knows the Old Testament extremely well, would say such a thing that he would say. And I don't think that doesn't make him a Christian. It doesn't make him not even sola scriptura. He's just taking that book and using it in a different way, saying this is a wisdom writing and using it as something different. Um, but there's so much more, Stephen and Katie. There's so much more evidence for the for the Bible. Um, it is scientifically accurate. When it ventures into the realm of science, it's not a scientific book, but when it ventures into that realm, it is historically accurate, archaeology, ar ar accurate archaeologically, geographically accurate. So when the Bible says there's places here and there, they're there. The Bible says that Abraham went through a gate in Laish. We know where Laish is today, and there's a gate there that they've uncovered from the days of Abraham. So those are the kind of things that you find over and over again. Um, David was said to have a palace in, in King David, um, in, in the city of David, and now they've uncovered a palace in the city of David right underneath where the tabernacle would have been placed, the land where the tabernacle was bought uh, for David. So these are just things in archaeology that are amazing, and they point us back to the fact that these are not stories to help us, but they are reality. All right. So thank you for your question, Stephen. I hope that that really helps. All right. Uh, we are about out of time. Let me just see if um, scriptures speak of a highway from Egypt to Assyria. I don't see it on a map, so I think it hasn't happened yet. Yeah, I would agree with you, Rod. Yes. I think that that highway from them is, is in our future. I don't think any of it's happened yet, but I still would like to know who Assyria, where Assyria is. What is Assyria that he's referring to? I just need to do some work on it. I just haven't had time. And if you, if you find out, Rod, I'd be really interested to know 
if you'd find out. I'm trying to recruit some of you guys to do some of the work with me. All right. I'd, I'd appreciate that. All right. Uh, so I just want to see if there's a question here that we can use for the beginning of our next one. Uh, Violet Stag, good to see you here. Hope things are going well. Um, I want to remind you, uh, we do have a, a question from Matt Grossman, um, who says, with past predestination, what does Matthew twenty two fourteen? Many are called and few are chosen. If Jesus saying any one single human is um, offered salvation, but only few are chosen to accept, therefore are being chosen by God. All right, that is our perfect question. Sorry to do this to you, Matt. It's a great question. Uh, what does many are called but few are chosen mean? And we're not gonna have a Q&A this weekend. It's Christmas Eve. I'm gonna be hanging out with family. We've got two services, two and four, and then I'll be hanging out um, with family. And then um, on Wednesday night, I'm gonna be taking Wednesday night off. And uh, so I'm not gonna be doing a Q&A. But when I come back, two weeks, uh, let's see, this is Wednesday. So it will actually be the following Sunday. So I miss a Sunday and a Wednesday. The following Sunday, Saturday, we'll have a Q&A. This will be our first question, all right? And so we'll devote all the beginning part to this. Good question, Matt. I appreciate it. Sorry to put you on hold, all right? So I got to go. I've uh, got a service coming up here in uh, just a little while. Uh, we're going to be talking about the world of the angels and what they look like. And they don't always look like we think angels look like, what they do, and um and, and, and what they are going to do in the book of Revelation. I thought we'd take a time to pause as we see the angels in Revelation chapter 4 in the throne room and talk a little bit about angels, what they do, and how they work. I think it's going to be a really interesting study, and I'm excited to give it. All right, stay close to Jesus. Love him. Remember, it's all about loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And dive in. Um, was it, um, I was trying to remember the names of, of those who were new believers. Um, I don't want to say I'm wrong. Uh, for those, uh, for those asked the question that were new believers about whether or not their Bible's literal stories, hey, hang in there. Just keep diving into God's word. Keep learning things. Find good people to look into. Um, Mike Winger has a lot of, of good videos on the the city of Tyre, um, some other things that you could go back and look into historical things in the Bible, whether or not they're true. Um, he's got a lot of good information about that. So take time to go there. I think that could be helpful for you. Stephen and Katie. Okay. So hang in there, Stephen, Katie. Uh, search for God. If you have more questions, I'm here. All right. We, you can ask them. I'd love to answer them for you. All right. So God bless you guys. Stay close to Jesus. Love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's really what it's about. You loving God. And when you love him, you're going to live for him. All right, I'm out. We will see you guys later on.